share button and then we're live. And... All right. Hey everyone and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today's the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle. He answers your questions if you send them into us in advance at chefaj.com. Please welcome him back to the show. Nice to see you, Dr. Lyle. Have you been into anything fun this last month since you've been on? I, well, I went I went to Florida to uh, to talk with uh, Dr. Scott Stoll at the Whole Foods Market Retreat. So that was good. So can't you see my tan, AJ? Well, not, not really. But but are they doing those kind of retreats kind of like the way that um, Dr. McDougall and Dr. Furman used to do those? With, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they, they but the Whole Foods people uh, kind of direct it now themselves. And so... Uh, that we do that a couple times a year, and it's a it's a really good experience. Well, that's neat. What's the weather like in Florida these days? Oh, uh, it was nice. It's very nice. Well, yeah. I don't want you to like it, and I don't ever want you to move. I'm finally near you, you know. So I've can... been there, and I've been there in times when it was very hot. <laughs> okay, so it's not perfect all the time. No, but it, in October, I mean, it's it's hard to beat Florida in October. Yeah. What, what city in Florida did you go to? Uh, it was the Tampa area, Fort Myers, down on the on the Gulf Coast. Oh, there's a lot of plant-based doctors there, actually. Yes. So that's, that's neat. Cool. Yes. Well, we'll dive right into it that you've talked about a lot, but people still struggle. So uh, the first question is from Jeanette. Mm -hmm. Hi, Dr. Lyle. I'm a 75-year-old female who has struggled with weight my entire life. I've recently resigned myself that I would just be fat my entire life. And then at Chef AJ's conference, I met Esther Loveridge, who is now 80 years old and not only lost 140 pounds doing the starch solution, but did it at the age of 74. And I was re-inspired that success is possible at any age. My question is this. Throughout my life, I have known people who wanted to be successful in different areas, such as show business or sports, but at a certain point, they gave up their dream and went on to live fairly happily happy lives, but often kept dabbling in those areas as a hobby, such as doing community theater or being on a softball team, for example. But when it comes to weight loss, it seems like people never give up despite repeated and lifelong failure. I still have many friends my age and older that spend thousands of hard-earned dollars on dangerous and ineffective pills, potions, procedures, and program programs, and yet stillness thin still thinness still eludes them. What is it about weight loss that makes women so desperate to achieve it at any cost and seemingly never give up the dream of being thinner? Hmm. Yes. Wonderful question. That person sounds like an English major uh, writing so well constructed. Um, I would say it's a great question. And I believe that the answer is, is that the other things, uh, sports and show business, uh, these are not subject to our control. Uh, the, the success is outside of our control. Uh, there are we have competitors. We have people making monetary decisions. So as much as I might like to play professional baseball, uh, if I'm not good enough and the, and all the, the minds in baseball that are looking over all the talent say, well, that, that Lyle kid, you know, he's got a, he's got a pretty good curveball, but he just doesn't have enough of an arm. <laughs> okay. Well, then there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. And if you're an actor or an actress, uh, you may be marvelously talented and beautiful, but the truth of the matter is if, uh, the, there, there are, you know, a hundred thousand talented and marvelous people all over crawling all over Los Angeles, and only about three hundred of them are working. 
So you're, you, you have to just uh, happen to hit the, hit the right thing. So it's out of your control. By the way, I just watched a documentary on Star Wars. I had no, I, I just considered it this fun, rollicking movie. I had no idea how much thought was put into this. This was an extremely carefully constructed storyline. Uh, and I, I was uh, astonished to learn the depth of George Lucas's commitment to that story. I also was astounded at watching the tape of the, uh, as he had an actor's read. I had never seen actors read for part before. I didn't know how it was done. And so they're just sitting there side by side next to each other and they're reading their lines. And I can't believe how good they are at reading the lines. Uh, unbelievably good. And there they had, they, they, they spent like, I guess a year, some incredible amount of time casting for this thing. And Harrison Ford was was uh, not seriously considered. He was the guy that they had the other people playing off of, and he was showing them how how it was to be done. He was sort of instructing the people that were that, that were being considered. How it's he's so good when you watch him doing the drills. You're like, how do you not know that's him? That's clearly Han Solo. And so um, it's, it did. You know, how many times did he have to hit him over the head? before they finally said, well, why don't we just use Harrison for God's sakes? Incredible to me. So do you ma imagine that Harrison Ford is sitting in the part reading it? He's the expert part. He's the expert reader for other actors. And then they don't cast him and his whole career looks different. So this shows you that you, your success is not under your own control in Hollywood. You could be right there on the on the one inch line and somehow there, that's the difference between being a 500 million dollar actor and being a guy that, that manages a car wash okay so uh apparently michael landon parked cars near in around hollywood as a young man and somebody looked at that handsome kid and said you know you ought to try to be an actor <laughs> all right so that's the long answer to the story of Hollywood and many other things in life that that we have to give up on. So maybe you wanted to be a professional artist and you're very good and uh, but you paint and you paint and you try to to sell. And it turns out that the market just, you know, isn't you know, there's no way for you to access your market well enough for you to make a living at it. That doesn't mean you're not outstanding. It just means that. You know, you're you're not one of the rare people that somehow tickle the consumers uh, in just the right way. So that's different than weight loss. Weight loss, there's nobody in your way but you. Mm. It is absolutely 100% assured that you will be successful if you do the right things. Ah, no wonder you don't give up on it. Your nervous system, your mind knows that this is within the realm of your possibility. The question is, do you and will you pay the price? Are you willing to pay the price? Okay. And so what people do is they make attempts. Uh, they attempt to pay the price. And then two things, de you know, several things can derail them. But one of the things that will derail them is that they actually don't know what to do. They're giving bad, they're given bad advice. They are also given misleading advice that there's cheap, quick, easy ways to do things that you can eat chocolate cheesecake, but if you count the calories, then you know somehow magically this is going to be successful. Right. So they are given misinformation from hucksters 
who are looking to get rich off of their misery. And they also uh, are miseducated and misunderstand from even well-meaning misguided physicians who say, well, you know, you really got to cut down the carbs. The physician who got no instruction in in medical school and knows absolutely nothing about how diet works. Um, And uh, and then if if they're incredibly fortunate, they somehow wander into the arena where the truth is being told. Okay, so that's super rare. Almost nobody gets here. Nobody gets in front of Chef AJ. 50,000, 100,000 people out of how many millions? Okay, so it, it's a very long shot to, to, to get the right information. So this gal has the right information and she's 75 years old and it's rattling around her, her mind like a loose screw as it should. Okay, it's like, yeah, this is a worthy goal for yourself. Um, and so now, now you're like, well, gee, you know, what's, why is it so difficult? Well, it, you, you bet it's difficult, but is it doable? Absolutely. It is. I've met Esther and, uh, yeah, looks great. Healthy. Uh, I, I, you know, mobile, everything is good. Okay. So, uh, wonderful person. So you're, it's like, wow, I hard to believe that that person turned this thing around at 74. Pretty amazing. Actually, I, I, I did not know that <laughs> you would have never, you'd never know it if, if you met her and, and sat down and chatted with her. You, you'd never think that she was any different than she is today. So, yeah. So she lives a different existence. And uh, as a result of that, and now hopefully she'll have another 20 something years ahead of her uh, at this at, in this state. And this person that's writing this question absolutely can do this. There it is. It's right in front of you. Doable. Nobody can stop you. That's the beautiful thing. So now, now it's a matter of, okay, now we know what we want to do and we know how to do it. Now we have to execute. All right. So that, that's what we have to do. So sometimes people have to, you know, go through some learning experiences. Sometimes they have to, you know, Alan and I talked about people resensitizing, uh, resensitizing their taste buds through water fasting. Uh, that may be unrealistic to go to True North, but you can contact the Dr. Nathan Gershfeld at, at uh, fastingescape.com. And Nathan is an expert in uh, instructing people how to do this at home uh, for short periods of time. We're not, you know, he's not t- taking people out 38 days like they do at True North to cure cancer, uh, but for helping people that are, would be capable of doing something like this at home shorter. Uh, Nathan is a great instructor for that. So that is a, Sometimes uh, Alan Goldhammer for years has, you know, for 40 years has been talking about the use of fasting uh, or modified fasting to help sensitize uh, taste preferences so that people can make a transition to healthy living. That's one trick, okay? Uh, Adam said, the young star uh, that that, uh, rescued himself uh, from the depths of despair, you know, seven or 10 years ago or whatever it was, this young man, has a, a beautiful saying that that encapsulates more artistically the things that AJ and I talk about. Uh, and that's it. He says, your environment needs to look like your goals. It's like, oh, that's beautiful. Talk about talk about a, a, a way to synthesize what we're trying to say. Your environment needs to look like your goals. You go to AJ's house, uh, which I've been. Kitchen is neat and orderly and there's nothing but healthy food around and there's little spice things in the jars and i mean it, it's a work of art 
Okay, it's a it's a the whole place is set up for healthy living, and that's exactly what happens there. So that, those are some ideas. So do you notice that it seems like this is more uh, women seem to care about this problem a bit more than men? I mean, not that men don't care. Usually it's because like they're they have some kind of health challenge, but this seems yeah. to play women more like it's out of desperation in many cases. Well, the, the truth is, is that uh, women gain, you know, uh, esteem by being thinner and men gain esteem by being bigger. Okay, so, so if a guy's, you know, 15, 20 pounds overweight in terms of fat, that's not really a bad thing. He's just a bigger guy. So the, uh, it depends on what it all looks like. So m most, most men would prefer to be 6'2", you know, 230 than 6'2", 160. So the, uh, so this is part and parcel. This has to do with the natural history of uh, the preferences of the opposite sex in terms of what it is that they find physically appealing. Uh, women find big, strong men, even if they're overweight, more appealing than they find skinny men. Okay, uh, the the opposite is not true for men looking at women. So that that winds up being uh, uh, puts puts more pressure on women to lose weight and more pressure on men to gain weight. So there's something like two million men in the United States that are using anabolic steroids that are shrinking their test testicles and will make them impotent. Okay, so. Why are they doing that? They are doing that so that they gain muscle mass, so that they're more attractive to women. So the uh, so there's there's probably so as there's you know all kinds of bariatric surgeries and uh, drug addicts being caused by amphetamines to lose weight, all kinds of trouble. Okay, uh, particularly on the female side of the equation, on the male side of the equation, you've got guys cannibalizing their own testicles as a result of feedback loops from shooting up. Uh, uh, testosterone for God's sakes. So, and causing themselves cancer. So, you know, it's, it's tough on everybody and everybody that's, that's looking for shortcuts is going to ultimately wind up disappointed. So uh, the way to do things, if you want to be a bigger, stronger man is to, to get to the gym and put those muscles under, under force in a way that, uh, that you're, uh, somebody that's knowledgeable would tell you to do without getting hurt. And then you will build to the level of your anabolic competence, which is dictated by your genetic code. If you're a woman, you are going to want to eat healthy, do things uh, correctly, and not try to starve yourself and not try to use bizarre techniques to try to go underneath what you would naturally get to. And some women are going to still be thick, uh, but fit and, and beautiful. And some women are going to be real thin. and uh, and but but nobody's going to be overweight. So you can be five, six, and 150 pounds uh, a woman, and you are not overweight. That that's just your biology. And you can be five, six, and 105 pounds, and not be underweight. And that's just your biology. That's the, that's the, the same thing is true for men on the side of musculature. So there's considerable biological difference in people on all kinds of dimensions. This is one of them. Uh, and so we happen to be in a space when we're talking about excess weight, uh, we know that this hurts women's feelings and confidence more than it hurts men's. And so that's why we're usually talking to women. Yep. Well, people should know that they don't have to give up. It's never too late, but no, it's, it's never too late. Never too late. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so here's uh, this question you've, I know you've had before, 
uh, from Julia. And she basically is saying that she's worried there's something that's, that's wrong with her because she eats six to nine pounds of food every day. It's all to the left of the red line, which means mm-hmm. fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. And she's lost 39 pounds over two years. She has about 30 to go. How do we get over the embarrassment of eating so much more food than everyone else I know? I, we, I brought this to you before with a mutual friend of ours that people were criticizing this person because they were still a little overweight. And they go, that's why you're overweight, even though their huge plate of food had nowhere near as many calories as what everybody else was eating. Yeah, first thing, don't be eating in front of other people, for God's sakes. You know, only eat in front of people that know what's going on. So that that that's the first thing. First things first. Okay? So nobody ever looks at anything that I eat. I eat basically in private, which is where it would make sense. The, um, however, the, there's a there's an additional question there, and there's a there's something to be looked at. So this is a lot of success. If she's if she's lost 39 pounds uh, from doing this, the um, 69 pounds of food a day is a massive amount of food. I have to tell you, the um, it. It also is bringing up a little issue, and that is that AJ's red line is, it's a warning. It's not a steel wall. It, it's meant to explain that that is what we are attempting to average for calorie density. We are not trying to eat everything below that level of calorie density. That is supposed to be the average that we are aiming for. Big difference. Okay, so that, that would mean in principle for every calorie we eat to the left of the red line, we would eat a calorie to the right of the red line equidistant. Okay, so there's no way that I eat everything to the left of the red line. And Alan Goldhammer would never recommend that everybody eats everything to the left of the red line. He would be explaining that anything to the left of the red line can be eaten with abandon as much as you want. But there's, you certainly don't have to be worried about eating as much as you want left of the red line. The issue is going to be as you go to the right of the red line, that's why it's a red line. It's like, okay, it should be a should be an orange line, i.e. warning. <laughs> okay. It should be a warning line. It's not a it's not a red line. Different. Okay. So nine pounds of food a day, this person's got to be eating a couple thousand pounds pounds of food a day that would have starved to death. So if you're eating nine pounds of food a day, you know, and you're eating two or 300 calories a pound, that's a massive amount of food. You're not designed to eat that. Okay. You could, you can do so, but um, you're not designed to. Your, your ancestors were much closer to 600 ish calories a pound on average with their food. So, one thing that you can consider is adding some food into the diet that is of higher calorie density that is intermediate level calorie density. So let's talk about a few things. Tofu's 550 calories a pound. Okay, that's getting close to the line. Um, for some people, depending upon who you are, um, a pasta. Uh, pasta is about 600 calories a pound in the in the noodle form of wheat pasta. The But it's not that rich. In other words, we're trying to average maybe six or 573 or whatever anybody thinks it is. But the point is, is that then it certainly doesn't hurt our cause to be eating things that are near the line. And yet, uh, if we eat some of that stuff, uh, pasta and tofu, also avocados at 900 calories a pound are not really that far from the line. Okay, so notice that if the line's 573, then vegetables are at 200 calories a pound are further from the line than avocado is. So in principle, 
if I ate a bunch of carrot sticks, you know, and and uh, along with avocado or something, those would even out and put me on the line. Okay, so this is how it is that I would be answering this person. Like, careful, let's make sure we're not living an unnecessarily bizarre existence. Uh, I don't believe that I've ever eaten six pounds of food in a day. I don't think I've ever done it. Okay, I've eaten a lot of low calorie density food in my life, but I don't think I've ever eaten six pounds of food in a day. So the uh, if you're eating routinely six plus pounds of food a day, you have an unusually and unnaturally lean diet that you're eating. And that diet uh, would appropriately be under some kind of modification uh, in order to move it uh, towards something that's a little bit more reasonable, okay? And that may, that may, might be able to take you all the way down to five calories a pound. I mean, excuse me, five, five, uh, five pounds of food a day, at which point things aren't so bizarre. So keep that in mind. Otherwise, what other people think, uh, you have to defend yourself. Uh, if, you, if you're going to do something very unusual that's going to upset people, then don't eat around them, for God's sakes. I don't. Yeah, I, I keep my diet to myself, largely. Nobody bothers me. All right. Well, I just hope she doesn't like feel bad and tries to eat less because like think about Robbie Barbero. He he literally eats 14 pounds of food a day because he doesn't, you know, he's 80, 10, 10, mostly. That. So that's a, uh, Robbie has got, you know, Robbie's a wonderful young man and he's trying his own thing and he's working very, very hard to try to see if he can figure out how to outmaneuver type one diabetes. So the, uh, he's uh, he's an unusual and special case, and he's uh, exceedingly knowledgeable and bright. And he's trying to uh, trying to discover what his body is capable of doing. Uh, that that should be that that's an unusual personal uh, scientific investigation that he's on. So that's a that's a different thing. Okay, so this individual um, needs to uh, look at the situation. And here, what it is that I have to say, you should not have to be eating 300 calories a pound a day in order to lose weight. That's not necessary. Okay? Your, your biological, you are biologically configured to be at an appropriate weight at what? 580 calories a pound or whatever it is that, that the, the research sort of triangulates on something like that. That's more or less what the truth is, okay? So if you're down at 300, cramming yourself full in order to, to keep adequate uh, calorie intake uh, up there just to do your daily business, then that is an unnecessary regimen, okay? It's one that you can do, but it's not one that our ancestors did. If our ancestors lived in a habitat where all they had was scratching out 300 calorie a pound diet, they left the habitat as soon as they could. That was a starvation habitat. So, the, um, so I would move your line move your average up from 200 or 250 or 300. Let's, I would move that thing at least up to 400 calories a pound and uh, see if we can back off some of the prodigious amount of eating that you're doing that is, you know, basically an unnatural sustenance regimen. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I don't get embarrassed, but I eat a lot and I don't get embarrassed. I don't, yeah. I don't eat. I don't think I eat that much anymore. When I when I was losing, I was, but now I eat probably a more appropriate. I would say four to five pounds a day, which is that's pretty normal, right? Well, but it's on the high side. But it's on the high side because you're eating low calorie density. 
Right. Alan eats a lot. I don't think Alan eats six pounds of food a day, but he probably eats five. Yeah, I, I would say, if, I mean, if I had to guess, it would be at least four and maybe five. But right. but I, I'm kind of proud that I get to eat a lot. I mean, it's I think it's kind of fun. And, you know, when I go to these spas where I teach, where they give spa portions, a half a cup of rice, and they see me this and they, you know, people go, you eat so much. I go, yeah, and they're great. And they get to be thin, too, like because they just don't understand calorie density. Anybody can do it, whether they need to or want to is another story. But you can eat a lot if you want. Yes. Well, I think it's fun, personally. Yeah. But okay, so um, pleasure trap question from Belinda. Hello, Dr. Lyle. What can I say to my family to convince them that the pleasure trap is real and I can't just stop eating super palatable foods? I've been trying to stop for years and I know that I've, I could have done it on my own. I would have done it by now. They just don't understand. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, so, uh, I'll have to get your help, AJ. What do we think she's asking of us? In other words, how to talk to her family to quit badgering her? I don't want to put words in her email, but I'm thinking that it's possible she doesn't have a clean environment and right. that's that's derailing her. And the reason she doesn't is because, and it's not just her. I hear from this all the time that they make fun of the people for asking for a clean environment. They feel they should have more self-control and like, can't you just push yourself away? And um, I, I feel that those people are either insensitive or maybe they just don't want those foods out of the house themselves or right. they're just disagreeable. So um, I, I think the only reason a person would need to convince somebody if it was a problem for them because you don't I don't need to convince my neighbor like but but luckily Charles is, is sympathetic to that and he doesn't yeah. keep hyper palatable food in the house right uh, I think that um this this is an example of how having uncooperative people around us makes us puts us in a position where our environment doesn't look like our goals and so suddenly we we are making the challenge vastly more difficult as a result of this. Um, there's a difference between making it more difficult than making it impossible. So uh, in my house, I've had various and sundry young adults living here from time to time, freeloading. <laughs> and uh, and their diets, you know, it, it isn't required if you live in my house that you live some clean way. Okay, so the, um, however, uh, what I did finally out of my frustration uh, was I went a few years ago and bought my own refrigerator, mid-sized refrigerator, and stuck it right in the kitchen. Okay, it uh, because I, I was having trouble getting to my stuff, and and I got to move the cheese out of the way, and it's like you know what, it's not that it's none of that's tempting to me, but it's just it was god annoying basically, and so I moved a new refrigerator in on the other side of the kitchen. And uh, stuck it over there, and literally, I I forget that the big house refrigerator is even in the house. It, I I don't even see that refrigerator. I walk right past it. I never think about what's in there. I never open it. It's like it's like it doesn't exist. And that's because as an animal, like I'm all about reinforcement under location. So where my food is is my food is in my refrigerator and the rule is you can take anything out of my refrigerator you want but you can't put anything in there okay whatever it is that you want to put in it better go in your refrigerator you got plenty of room over there if you got too much stuff clean it out and throw the crap away but you don't put things in my refrigerator my refrigerator is my food 
you can steal it, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But don't put your crap in my refrigerator. That's the rule in my house. Okay. And as a result, I have a clean environment as far as I can tell and I experience. So that's what I would do as I would delineate in your environment. These cupboards are mine. Those are yours. This, this, you know, this, this refrigerator, I'd get my own refrigerator. Okay. That refrigerator, if it's a small one, you know, it doesn't have to be a big one. It can, it can fit somewhere probably. The, uh, this is my refrigerator, same kind of rules apply. So maybe you can't, maybe you have to do, you know, shelves, but I could just see shelves completely going to south, going south. Okay. So they make a big pot of, oh, I don't know, ham soup. And they put it out right there because it's the only places on the big shelf where you put your soup and now it's in there and now you're irritated. Okay. So better to have your own refrigerator with rules that where they can, they're ingress and egress and basically segment up your personal brain in terms of that there's places that your food exists and then everything else is off limits. And that's the best probably that you can do. Uh, you're not going to convince these people to cooperate. You know, very, very few people will ever walk this walk. This is a very special self-disciplined journey, okay? Um, and everything we do to make it more difficult makes it less likely that we're going to be successful. So being in a problematic household is a major obstacle. Uh, it is asking of the human mind to do things that it is not designed to do, which is to basically steal itself in the face of high calorie density temptation. Okay, so that 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 is asking a tremendous amount out of the human nervous system to pull that off. So uh, as I've said, if I had somebody that worked in a donut shop and they brought, you know, donuts every morning and they had the leftover donuts and we had seven or eight of them hanging around in a pink box, um, I would be in trouble. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that I would need two or three of those donuts every day. Uh, the uh, if you put those things right under my nose, uh, free, you know what I mean? In other words, there's no, I don't have to jump through any hoops to get it. If there's a bunch of junk right in my house, I'm going to be in trouble. Turns out the people and the stuff that they bring into my house is not something that tempts me. You know, I, I just couldn't care less about, uh, about you know, sour cream. It's, it's irrelevant. So, uh, but if you put things relevant to me in front of me, you put some, you know, chocolate uh, or maple bar, you know, donut, that's going to be a problem. So it's not a problem because it's not in my house. And if it's not in your house, it's not in your mouth. You got it. <laughs> you know, Dr. Lyle, I, I, you know, I, I have to go back to the last question because something keeps banging on my brain about it. Yeah. You know, um, the, the people that teach the weighing and measuring programs, they're yeah. not plant-based, none of them. They're doctors, not generally, and sometimes they're MDs, but usually yeah. they're PhDs and they do this st strict weighing and measuring. And one of the their tenants is the things have to be weighed because some people have a, this is what they say, a volume addiction. So they even weigh out like, you know, seven ounces of non-starchy vegetables. I'm curious for Julia, is it possible that some people just require more food in terms of volume to feel full? You talk about the y'all circuits in, in the pleasure trap. And I'm just wondering, cause like Charles can eat just little, oh, I'm so full. I, is it possible that some people just need more food, regardless of the calorie density of it? Yes. In other words, so, uh, uh, but remember, you, you've got a hypothalamus that's keeping track of that. 
So uh, Alan needs, you know, he's a bigger person than I am, but he also needs more calories. It's just full of hot air. He, he actually, he, his temperature, if you ever shake his hand and you're visiting Alaska, you'll be amazed because his hand is warm. You know, everybody else is freezing to death. Okay. So he, there are people that just generate more heat. They generate more calories. Uh, and so all two people, two, you know, five foot, four inch, 132 pound women are not the same. They may be very similar in build. They may even be sisters. They look similar, but they are not the same biologically. One of them will probably be burning 200 more calories than the other one, just by virtue of differences in biology. So uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, so it the however, what we, we can see is that as you eat foods of greater calorie density, you're going to eat less and less volume. The system is not insensitive to that. So if I take a big volume eater and I start pouring a bunch of olive oil over everything that they eat, trust me, they're going to eat less. The, 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 they will start to feel sick, you know what I mean, over the richness of that food. And I can take somebody that typically eats five pounds of food a day, and believe me, after three pounds, they will fat enough. Right? Why? Because I would have fed them 4,000 calories of a bunch of stuff drenched in olive oil, and they'll feel like throwing up. So you are not at, at the mercy of stretch reception and needing volume. You, it is a, it's an interaction between the, the volume that's in the food and the calorie density of the food together. And so that we, we, all we need to do is we need to not be out in the, in the land where food is artificially calorie dense. At that point, the system gets into trouble. It wasn't designed by nature to be eating diets of a thousand calories a pound. So people are eating diets of a thousand calories a pound. If you try to weigh and measure your way out of that, you're going to fail. Okay, it's not going to work. So you're you, you will feel a tremendous uh, recurrent hunger drive that is not satisfied if you're trying to eat very rich foods and just trying to eat less of them. So that's the story. That doesn't mean you can never eat rich food. Our ancestors did. Um, uh, so occasionally, for example, uh, I wouldn't eat animal food, which is rich, but I would occasionally eat some dried carbohydrate. So. Um, some cram muffin that, that somebody might make for me. That's a dried out carbohydrate that's of higher calorie density, but it's healthy, okay? So all the toasted corn tortillas, um, when I'm gonna have my rice and beans on them with you know salsa and lettuce and tomatoes and, and some slices of avocado, that's a, that, that thing all put together, the corn tortillas are probably 1500 calories a pound toasted. Um, and the avocado is 900, but the rice is 500 and the beans are 400 and the lettuce is 100 and the salsa is 200. By the time we put it all together, we probably have something that's 400 to 500 calories a pound. So the, um, I forget what I'm trying to say. Oh, but the point is, is that when I, when I, if I eat those things, which I do from time to time, and I'm not considering that a treat, I'm considering that a staple that, so now now that 500 calories a pound, that is going to be considerably more satiating than someone who's just eating a plateful of steamed vegetables. If you eat a plateful of steamed vegetables with 200 calories a pound, you're going to need to eat two and a half times as much of that stuff than me eating my tostada. Okay, and your brain is smart enough to figure that out. So you it, and it, it won't eat three times as much. It won't it won't go to 600 calories because it because you just mysteriously eat too much food. No, 
it's very, very intelligent. The, the information processing that's involved in satiety, to get this right, uh, over the last 10 years that AJ has been skinny, she has e eaten different diets on different days. There's been different configurations of food, and yet it all washes out and leaves her in the same place. Okay, That's because the hypothalamus is smart enough to be able to know the difference between 300 calories a pound, 347 calories a pound, 447 calories a pound, and 513 calories a pound. There's no difference. That the it's not going to make any difference how much weight you put on your body. The only thing that's going to be different is how much food you eat. Okay. If you start getting past some point, you know, when you enrich the diet enough, then we're going to start seeing weight put on you. Okay. Now, now we now we've found the line where that starts to happen. But that's you're not going to see bodily differences in two people, one of them is eat 300 calories a pound or an individual. They're not going to be any different physically if they're eating 300 calories a pound or 450. Uh uh. Both of those averages are so sufficiently lean that that person is going to be very lean. When they're eating 300 calories a pound, they're going to be eating seven pounds of food a day. If they're eating 450, they're going to be eating five pounds of food a day. In other words, about all, it's all about the same amount of calories. They're going to look the same, but in one case, they're eating a lot more food. Okay. To, for no good reason. Okay. Uh, there, there's no purposes served by that unless they happen to really like that process. So keep that in mind. The, uh, that, that's how that works. That's why we don't reach, we don't weigh and measure and we don't reach for extremely low calorie density. Neither of those things makes any sense. This system was designed by nature to average an intermediate level of calorie density. That's what we need to be aiming for. Thank you. I didn't mean to like confuse people. Oh, with no. The red line. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, anytime we want to take a shot at weighing measuring, it's always a good idea. Well, yeah. No, thank you. Oh, my God. I love you for saying that because where do they get their science that this is the only thing that works for food addiction? I I, I mean, it's such a religion with them and the people that do it. It's very hard. These are the yeah. ones I like to work with them. But wh why do they think I can understand like things that are you know, oil or, or, or peanut butter, of course, but like the, to, to say that you can't have more than, you know, seven ounces of vegetables and, you know, and they're also strict about like no snacks. You can never snack meals are planned and you can't, you have to like report it to your sponsor the day before you can't, it's like, it's so rigorous. I don't know how anyone does it. And where's the science that it's the only thing that works. Cause you've been working for the McDougal program for so many years and they never weigh and measure their food. Nope. It's all, this is all, uh, it, there, there are things that appear to have, they have superficial logic. Okay. So weighing and measuring has superficial logic. Um, the, and the superficial logic, uh, is compelling to people. And so there are some people who by following this, uh, such a program, they actually have some success. No surprise. They're, they're probably eating lower calorie density foods. They got a bunch of rules for not eating much of rich food along with it. So they uh, so they're having some success and now they're not sure what to attribute the success to. Uh, and so they attribute it to what they're being told that is responsible for the success, which is the weighing and measurement. So what this is really what it, it, it uh, activates is superstition. So uh, superstition is can be 
powerful. In other words, you 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 believe something is the reason, and by God, therefore, you it's it's like you see evidence of this AJ in OCD. So yeah, OCD is I'll tap if I tap three times with my left hand over here, then I'm going to be okay. Why? Because every time if I do that, then then it turns out that nothing bad happens. Ah. <laughs> all right yeah did you ever not tap three times and see if anything got up well i did that once and then you know the kid fell over in the high chair and you know we had to take him to the emergency room so yeah now now i keep keep tapping you know every two minutes i i do three taps okay so this is you, you can see how different minds the way they're built they they are more susceptible to ocd like kinds of of superstitious uh processes okay so the uh, and so that that's what that is. And so a weighing measuring program where somebody tenaciously holds on to it, uh, you're watching a superstitious process. No, no. I, I mean, I kind of shrug my shoulders. It's like as we do at anything. You know, I've got I've got friends of mine with OCD, and they do goofy little things. Got a whole bunch of them. In fact, I don't know why I'm surrounded <laughs> surrounded by people with OCD. And so this is. Uh, uh, and most of the time, I mean, it's harmless. It's a little bit annoying, you know, so I got a friend of mine that every once in a while, he gets a bump in the road. He has to go around the block and make sure he didn't hit somebody and kill him. Okay. It's like, you obviously didn't hit anybody and kill him. He's like, yeah, but you know, I didn't see whether or not when I went over that bump, whether that was a human or not. Okay. So that sort of little hyper conscientious anxiety, you know, winds up. You know, yeah, just drive around the block and then check. And so uh, you got people that can't leave the house without checking the stove 15 times. And then even then, it's hard to get in the driveway and get out of the house. So OCD-like tendencies, these are not, not uh, th these are akin to human conscientiousness. And, uh, and so that's what they are. They're a kinship to this. And so the, uh, and so weighing and measuring plays actually quite well with OCD-like personalities in this domain. It, it, it grabs a hold of them and will cause a swirling cauldron of, of superstitious-like thinking and behavior. And then lo and behold, they have some success and they're, they're so desperate to hold on to it that they just keep the, the, the they don't want to hear anything that's outside of the, of this sort of superstitious, uh, you know, configuration. So oh, they get so mad. They get so mad when people mention it at all. You know, like they're just they're vehement. You're gonna we're gonna get a lot of comments about this. You know, right, right, all good. I mean, but this is I uh, in some ways, you know, AJ. A lot of superstitions don't really harm anybody. They're just kind of amusing from afar. Um, and and but and, and you can see it in all kinds of people. I mean, even I, you know, have caught myself. With little superstitious little thinking from time to time, it lasts about four minutes, but it isn't that it's not possible. So anyway, that's a the whole bunch of where weighing measuring comes from. It comes from a superficial logic that if I make sure I don't eat too much, if I weigh it out, then I haven't eaten too much. Okay, uh, that's true, but all the animals in nature they don't eat too much, and I'm saying one of them has a scale. So what the hell? What's going? What do you think is actually going on here? So the uh, but but that's okay. It, it it persists and it's a waste of time of energy and it's uh it's a just like all OCD OCD 
is its own private little jail. Okay. And it's it it exacts a price. I mean, it's not a disease, it's a feature of individual personalities. And they're never going to get rid of it. They're there you can dial it down by challenging the 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 by, by essentially getting evidence that contradicts the superstitious thinking. So that's how, you know, that's how my friend can reduce down his his uh, checking the bumps by actually not checking them and then finding out that, in fact, he is not being chased down by the police and nobody's coming to his door, uh, even though he did have a bump in the road last week. You know, it turns out that, you know, there's cameras all over the place and somehow nobody was reported dead. <laughs> okay. Hand washers, you know, uh, OCD therapists will make them rub their feet on the floor. You know what I mean? Uh, rub, rub their hands on the floor and then pick up a carrot and eat it and then find out that they didn't die as a result of contamination. So OCD therapists will make people essentially do what it is that they most fear and then discover that their fears were an exaggeration. That is the, the treatment of OCD. Okay. It's, it's more elegant than that. That's why we have Dr. Laura Bruce. You know, Dr. Laura Bruce, we ought to sick her on weighing and measuring people. I don't think she wants them. Okay. Uh, but uh, but the point is, it's that same kind of process. And, and so I'm not surprised that it's out there, AJ, and it's going to be out there for as long as we live. Great. Thank you. I've just never seen it anywhere in the plant-based world. None of them, you know, none of them. None of them. Yeah. No, we're, we're promoting the accurate concept. That's Great. why. Thank you. Um, this is from Anonymous. Recently, I've heard both Dr. Sabatino and Dr. McDougall say, when you look in the mirror and you like how you look, it's when you know you're at your ideal weight. This makes me feel discouraged because even though I'm thin, I still suffer with body dysmorphia that seems to have gotten worse. I've been at my goal weight since 2018, but I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I can look in the mirror and see myself slim. Are there any strategies I can use to help me merge the mental picture I have of myself with the physical image of everyone else around me sees? Um, yeah, those are two guys that are talking, you know. Alan Goldhammer looks in the mirror and he he hears a, a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so uh, women are going to be inherently a lot more self critical about uh, about the, these issues uh, for reasons we talked about earlier. So um, I, I would I don't know exactly necessarily um, how to help you. This is an interesting. This is actually an interesting kind of case um, <clears throat> uh, that, that it's a little bit of what anxiety is about. And somewhere in there, there's maybe some fears that need to be challenged. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how to do it. That's why it's not a bad case for Dr. Laura Bruce, by the way. Uh, that's a, sort of an interesting kind of case. Um, uh, I, can, I can tell you... Um, the whether well, there's uh, there would be different kinds of uh, ideas that we could uh, attack this with. Um, the I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to think now. I have several things swirling through my mind about how I might handle that uh, if the if the person talked to me. Um, 
Uh, let me think about that. Yeah. Um, one thing I know, uh, my colleague Jen Hawk would tell people that probably a really good idea to disengage from a lot of social media that you may be looking at. So uh, we, we have found, for example, this person is not a young person, but we have found that, that um, since the advent of social media in the last decade, that young women are vastly more self-critical about their appearance than they were 10 years ago. So there is, there's too much comparison competition. Uh, social media is not actually people particularly connecting. Uh, what they are doing more is they are, uh, they are presenting, they are sort of displaying for feedback and likes and so on and so forth. So what has happened in the social media space is that, you know, not all of social media space, obviously, but a lot of social media spaces has become a process of, of pretty people making displays. And so as a result of that, you know, God knows why somebody is following some pretty girl who's 30 years old and 114 pounds. It's like following. Why are we following? What does she know? What does she do? Who cares? Okay. But people do this. And as a result of that, we, you know, it's one thing if the person's an educator, for goodness sakes, but, um, but you can basically get yourself inundated with so social media and, and basically screens and comparisons that can make you very, very self-conscious. Um, and so that could be contributing. I have no idea if it's contributing to the struggles that this person's having for the last five years, but it might be, and there's a good chance that it is. So anyway, I would, uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Jen is pretty adamant that an awful lot of problems are being generated by the, these kinds of, uh, the, this kind of addiction to, uh, social media, it's feedback and social comparison, et cetera. And that it is, uh, it's problematic for, for people's happiness. So that's another person that this individual might consider contacting if this is a problem that they're having with this. Uh, uh, Jen is an exceptional counselor and, you know, has had her own issues and had her own weight loss odyssey and her own, you know, uh, she certainly uh, struggled and had a lot of success, but you know, just just is a natural hard worker in this space uh, psychologically. So that this is, you know, very very interesting question, tricky. Uh, the we, I always I always look at psychological problems ultimately if I forget, but I look back to and I ask myself the question: Did this exist in the Stone Age? And the answer is no. We didn't have people looking themselves in the mirror thinking that maybe they weren't at their ideal shape. That wouldn't have been a characteristic feature in the Stone Age village, okay? So we can see that the problem is derived from environmental processes taking place in the present, okay? Same way that you know, there's no alcoholism in the Stone Age village. Um, there was uh what else was it? Yeah, there was no drug addiction. There was no obesity in the Stone Age village. Why? There was there was no weighing and measuring in the Stone Age village. <laughs> no weighing and measuring in the Stone Age village. Okay. <laughs> they had all kinds of superstitions and all kinds of uh, interesting little cultural bizarre things that they did. 
but what they didn't do was they they did not look you know go to a, a still lake and look down on their you know from above look at their bodies and then obsess about it okay so something about what is available to us for information feedback is problematic and so we want to look at that and see how it is that we can change our environment okay thank you um I, I I know this person and I, I texted and said, are you on social media? But they have, I guess they're at work. They haven't gotten back to me yet. And sure. maybe they will during the time in the broadcast. Okay. I, this is, I listened to every single episode of beat your jeans. And I don't think you've ever answered this question before. Also from anonymous, dear Dr. Lyle, while I've never seen a mental health professional, mostly out of fear, I definitely have a few quirks and need some help. I can't stand the sound of other people eating, especially when they chew with their mouth open or talk with their mouth full. It doesn't just make me cringe. It literally sickens me to the point where I want to vomit. I've always managed this by eating alone, but now my work has mandatory weekly lunch meetings. I can't get out of them and I get so nauseous watching and listening to others eat. I also get angry and annoyed when I hear people cough, clear their throats or make other distasteful sounds. Should I explain this to my coworkers or HR? What is wrong with me? And is there anything I can do about this? I've actually known a few people with auditory. Think, great question. And it's way out of the field. And um, my, I believe that that is a totally legitimate, you know, i.e. mental quirk uh, that, that um, uh, it is almost certainly genetic. And, the um, and so as a result, I mean, I don't think there's any way you get out of it. I think that's just that person's nature. And the uh, there's I, I've run into a lot of things like that with a lot of people over the years. You know, I've been in this business for 40 years, and so there's been you know, there, there's been 50 people, one person a year or so, that has some real oddity like that, and um, that. You know that that is a you know this is sort of this very high sensitivity to certain sensory inputs. Um, yeah, I, I think that I would go to HR and just say, "Hey, I got to be excused from this." You know, whatever so, somebody can write up a synopsis that there was something important that took place at that meeting, but you know, uh, but I I want to I, I need to be out of it, and I I don't I don't think that there's any way that that company could reasonably try to force your hand on that that is a uh that that's a legitimate accommodation issue that that is the that that is the equivalent i hate to call it this because it's only this way it's a handicap in other words uh your it isn't i don't see anything particularly wrong with it but the uh, at all in other words but the point is it is effectively a handicap under certain conditions and i think it it absolutely warrants accommodation and uh, if they need some psychologist or to write a one paragraph thing to to make it all square with HR, then you do. If you're in California, contact me. I'm a licensed psychologist in California. That's so, so interesting. Uh, but that that's that's how I would probably handle it. Let's not try to fight it. Let's not try to fix it. Uh, I.e., work harder on your environment than you do on yourself. I googled it and I got I came up with the word. It said misophonia. That the uh, I don't know that I'd ever heard that term before, but I knew that that thing exists in the world, and this is a legitimate, 
quote, disorder. That's so interesting. I used to be, gosh, over 40 years ago, I used to be a respiratory therapist. And part of it, you know, people would like cough stuff up and then show it to you. And like, I, I mean, I was able to do my job, but I, frankly, I didn't love it. You know, it was kind of cringy. <laughs> You know, but I was getting paid. Much better people showing us the, the nice vegan food they make, AJ. That's oh, way, way better. Absolutely. So this is from Renee. Dr. Lyle, I'm an older woman who gets up three times every night to pee. I already avoid drinking fluids before bed. I've heard you say in the Stone Age, this was not normal, so not to worry. But everybody else says we need uninterrupted sleep, and it's good to take meds to strengthen my bladder. Who's right? Take meds to strengthen the bladder? Yep. Um, you know, it is not at all a problem getting up and you do not need interrupted sleep. That is a, that is total fallacy. So the, the issue would be that, uh, I don't know whether or not there is anything that is truly, God, I hate to use the term safe and effective because every time, every time we fi find out that something might be effective, Turns out it's not safe. <laughs> uh, however, uh, I have known on probably fairly rare occasions for Dr. Peter Sultana to prescribe medication. So um, not often. It's not something that, that Peter doesn't reach for uh, very often. But this is a kind of a case. It's not an emergency situation. Uh, but I think that this warrants a 20-minute you know, phone call, uh, uh, consultation with Dr. Peter Sultana at True North. Uh, that is the, that's just the, the finest family physician doc that I know. And so this would be something that he would know about and uh, he, he would be able to do a more comprehensive background check on everything that you're doing uh, and listen and find out all about you. And then, and then he would tell you what he would think about this problem and how it is that he think it would be best to be managed. He might tell you something that I don't know. Uh, and he might actually say, hmm, in that case, maybe we would use a half a milligram of melatonin. You know what I mean? I don't know that he would say that. I definitely wouldn't, but I'm not an expert uh, on this on this issue. So yeah, let's defer to somebody who likely is. Okay. Well, I can attest he's great. Ever since he became my doctor there in 2011, I, I book him almost monthly. I mean, I'm not sick, but I just, I like having him. That's got such a great voice and personality. It's just and he doesn't, did you notice he hasn't aged in like 20 years? Like literally he just, yeah, it's ridiculous. I love, I love that guy. It is I love, what it is. love that guy. Okay. This is from Liza. I read Natural Hygiene by Herbert Shelton because I heard it was an influential book for Dr. Goldhammer and you. Most of the book is about food combining. Is there any merit to food combining? I think it is generally said there isn't, but once I heard Dr. Clapper say that fat like avocado is best eaten with vegetables and not starches because eating fat with starch causes the fat to be stored more efficiently. Any thoughts? Yeah, um, Michael may be right. There may be some tiny little effect, but it would be trivial. Okay, so um, the, uh, Michael would be more knowledgeable about uh, digestive issues and the sequences of foods uh, that that could be an issue for some people. Okay, so um, so uh, the, the early hygienists weighed way too big a deal about food combining, um, and so what they were thinking and 
uh, is, is just largely understood at this point to be misunderstandings. So that doesn't mean that there aren't occasions when Alan will tell somebody, okay, this is, this is what you ought to be eating. This ought to be the order that you eat it in, or these ought to be the combos. But those are people with particular digestive challenges that we are trying to essentially work around their limitations. So yeah, I never even once, I never think about food combining, but I do, I do actually eat um, with concepts of digestion problems in mind. So for example, I never eat watermelon or pears or um, any juicy fruit, pineapple or anything like that on an empty stomach. If I do, I will wind up very likely in a lot of pain. Okay, so that's a, that's just a natural thing for me. And um, sometimes I desperately want to eat some watermelon on the stomach because I just played basketball and there's a bunch of fresh cut watermelon somewhere. And it's like, oh man, do I want that watermelon? And then I'll eat a few bites of it and hope to get away with it. Okay. Only problem is there's about a 10, 15 minute delay of pain. So I've only messed that up, folks. Oh, five or 600 times I have eaten myself into pain by doing that kind of thing. It's like, I can't, uh, I haven't done it in a while. <laughs> I'm on a pretty good streak. I, I probably haven't done that in six months. The uh, I don't know if I've done it 500 times. I've certainly done it, a, you know, 150 times, 200 times in my life. So, um, so is there something to? Uh, by the way, if I already eat oatmeal first, or you know, a couple of bananas, or you know, anything, some spaghetti. If I already eat anything before, and then 15 or 20 minutes later, eat the watermelon. I can eat as much watermelon as I want. But I cannot eat it on an empty stomach. Okay, so which is a shame because I love watermelon. It's my favorite thing. So the uh, so the bottom line is is that the the old Shelton thinking the 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 old guys were seeing some things. They were playing around with some ideas, but they didn't know, and so they were given given you the best that they knew in 1930. Uh, we know a lot better now, and so yeah, I would not take food combining as a is a concept seriously at all. Thank you. Yeah. I'm the opposite, Dr. Lyle. I can't eat watermelon after a meal. I have to have it first, which yeah. means that when you come over again, it's going to be all gone because I eat it right before my meal. <laughs> and we know how Ben picks watermelon. The you got best. it. You got yeah. it. Okay. Laurel says, Dr. Lyle, I've heard you allude to the history of fluoride being political and the opposite of health promoting, but I've not heard the history behind it. Could you please flesh it out? I actually don't know. I, I probably reported that right after I had read something. Uh, uh, and so I was all hot bothered about it, which you should be hot bothered about it. Uh, this came to my attention um, uh, uh, through from Michael Greger raising a fuss about this sometime in the last year. Uh, and I'm glad he did because I was asleep on it. Then I instantly ran and told Alan and said, yeah, Doug, read my stuff from 25 years ago. I've been telling you this for a long time. So, uh, but I don't think even Alan knew how destructive it was. It's very destructive. And the uh, when I say political, usually not too far, there's a there's a phrase in the world that, that we know, it's called political economy, okay? Hmm, that's kind of interesting. Is that kind of like politics and economics are kind of mixed up together? And the answer is, yes, they are mixed up together. They are, they are cousins, they are intertwined, okay? And so uh, when I say political, I mean, 
there is money in it for somebody. And so, uh, and so as a result, the, the, the push for fluoridation has not been solely the result of well-meaning but ignorant people at the CDC trying to help you have less cavities. No, there has been money involved, uh, which is obviously true now that the research evidence has been increasingly clear about how destructive it is, and the CDC has not changed their policy. So the CDC, on the one hand, will report how destructive it is, and on the one hand, they'll report about how great it is. You, you figure that out. <laughs> you figure that one out. Uh, when you look at something that that's it's that bizarre, you understand that dollar signs are are guiding somebody's mouth, which is exactly what's going on. So fluoride is bad news, and you should get get away from fluoride. You know, basically uh, as quickly and reasonably and responsibly and affordably as you can. But you want you do not want it inside of you. Nice. You want to stop or you want to take more questions? I will go one more question. They hard to pick, but they all came in the same day. Okay, well, this is an interesting one from Renee, who says you're her favorite guest. She says, Dear Dr. Lyle, you mentioned that women are in general peaceful, but always in sexual competition with other women in the village. Do less attractive women always feel threatened by more attractive women? Is it just impossible for them to be genuinely peaceful with their own less attractive physical attributes? which make them less competitive? Um, people differ in sort of how competitive they are and and what, what their situation means to them. So you have to understand that in, uh, these, these competitions are sort of in principle. You might not even really hardly be consciously aware of them, or you may be very consciously aware of them, depending upon what the situation is and 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 who you are, et cetera. So, the, um, so it is would not be the case that uh, a less attractive woman would always feel in competition with a more attractive woman or with other women in general. In other words, they may not be really very inherently worried about that situation. They may not be uh, even thinking about mating competition. They may have set that whole thing aside in their life. And uh, I, I have met people uh, of various degrees of attractiveness, including highly attractive, that were basically completely and un uninterested in, in sexual process at all, that it just literally wasn't inside their nervous system. They were, they had no motivation whatsoever, and there was nothing wrong with them physically. Uh, and yet they, uh, uh, they, they have plenty of opportunity, but no interest. Okay. So when I make comments that I'm assuming that they're that they're uh, what do you call it reporting what I said because I can't remember what I said. But what I'm reporting on when you hear me talk like that is you're 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 hearing me summarize the dynamics of human evolution. Okay, so the summarizing the dynamics of human evolution is not telling you the story of every single individual's personal experience. The story of human evolution is largely about all kinds of heterosexual sexual competition and reproduction and child rearing and all that kind of stuff. That that story leads to the sideline gay and lesbian community. Okay. Uh, it isn't that those people weren't there in our natural history, but when evolutionary biologists are thinking about 
what drove the evolutionary processes of the species and what is characteristic. What you find is you find, you know, high levels of motivation in all species behind sexual competitive process. Okay. So the, uh, now that means you're going to find inside of gay and lesbian communities, sexual competitive process it just looks slightly different. Okay. So it's the same, same kinds of processes are going on. So, um, but that doesn't mean that every single individual is either feeling competitive ever or in a given place. Uh, it's also true, incredibly, that you will see very attractive people feel very sexually competitive with people that are significantly subjectively or objectively less attractive than they are. It's like, whoa, what's the problem there? Like, that. why would we have any kind of sensitivity the answer is god knows why in other words that that person is hypersensitive and hyper defensive and you know hyper anxious and ocd-ish and disagreeable and god knows what okay so all of these basic uh processes of of life have to be seen you know they can be seen through two very different lenses one of them is an overarching lens of the species as if we were a Martian biologist that was cataloging the general processes of how this species goes about its business. Okay. Uh, in that case, we will find that uh, both women and men definitely, feel, you know, human individuals typically are sensitive to sexual competitive processes. They just are. Okay. The, um, the, the, it is it has been a useful and important feature of human evolutionary history to be paying attention to that uh, for many reasons. Uh, but one of those reasons is uh, if we are mated, we have to be worried about our competitors stealing our mate. Okay. Uh, in certain animals, they don't have to do that because there aren't long-term uh, pair bond situations where both both parents invest in offspring, but in humans, they do. So as a result, human beings are inherently pair bondish in their, in their sexual psychology. And as a result of that, they are therefore, they have something to lose if they lose their mate and they could lose their mate to competitors. So therefore, it makes sense that they have competitive sensitivity to possible competitors. They are naturally competitive in that way, and they are generally aware of people that would be competitive for them. So, uh, you know, this is, so I'm, I'm not saying anything that is even remotely controversial or, or should be surprised about. Uh, every girl knows that if she's having lunch with her boyfriend and then the waitress comes over and the waitress is very sexually attractive, they there's a dynamic between those three people right there that is can be uncomfortable. Uh, that that is be because of the uh, awareness that people have about comp competitive process. So, so an answer uh, to the question. The answer is no. People aren't always thinking about these things, and they aren't always going to be influential in their decision making or in their or in in their life experience. But in general, for the species. If we were to look at general species processes, people are absolutely aware of their competitive standing. They should be aware of their competitive standing because their competitive standing 
uh, is an analysis of their threats and their opportunities. And so they should be aware of their threats and opportunities in the same way that a rabbit is aware of the threats and opportunities that looks out at the carrots and it looks out, is working out for the foxes. You're designed by nature to analyze uh, threats and opportunities in your environment and to essentially then, then uh, configure behavior that is optimal for genetic success within the threats and opportunities space that you have. That would mean that if you're in a village environment or any other environment and there's potential sexual competitors around as well as potential sexual opportunities around, you should have some sense of what your competitive standing is in order to be sensitive to threats and to be uh, also aware of opportunities. That would be the state of the organism writ large. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh, well. Why is life so hard? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, AJ, I uh, I was was talking to a relatively young person recently who, after after really trying to find uh, Miss Wright, said, "You know what? Sometimes I just feel like quitting the whole thing." And and the truth is, that's exactly what people will feel from time to time. They'll just feel like, "Oh, it is hard. Boy, it's just really hard. You know, it's really hard to make make things work." And so sometimes you do need a break and. Sometimes that break can be long or short, uh, but usually what will happen is, you know, depending upon where, where you are age-wise and your personality, usually then nature will drag you back into the game at, at some point, you know, uh, even the, even if it's hard, because it's 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 a part of it's one of the one of the games we were meant to have to face. But in the Stone Age, if they didn't have mirrors, did they know who was more attractive and who was less? Yeah. Yeah, you can tell uh, this is uh, what Cooley 100 years ago called the looking glass self. In other words, you know, because you can tell by how people treat you. Okay, and you can tell, uh, you know, you, you, you've got your own eyes to tell how attractive other people are. That's genetic. You can analyze that very well. You've got mechanisms inside of you. Men will swear that they can't tell what who, what men are attractive. Like, oh, I can't tell. Yes, they can. <laughs> you just have to do the science right. So men know very well what other men are attractive. And uh, and women, and they certainly know the attractiveness of women. And women know uh, how attractive men are. And women know how attractive other women are. The only thing you don't, you can't tell necessarily without mirrors would be yourself. But how would you know? You would know by how other people treated you. That's how you would know. Okay. So you have in you a self-confidence level about your attractiveness, which is independent of you staring in the mirror. Uh, it is a it's a derivative of the of, of what has transpired in your lifetime in your interactions with other people. How they have treated you along the way tells you a great deal. Okay, so if you're if you're a handsome or beautiful person, you've had handsome and beautiful people coming on to you in your this lifetime. If you are average, you may have had that happen once in a while, but you haven't had it happen often. Okay, and so through through the feedback that you have received, you get the data, and you have that as part of your self concept, uh, and it is you know necessary that that be part of your self concept, so you know when a good deal comes along. Okay, yeah, uh, if you if you you need to have that in evolution, you need to know 
hey, I'm kind of average, but this person's above average and they're interested in me. Therefore, I should be very interested. I have to take this very seriously. Okay. That is, you have to know a bargain when you see it. And that's why it is that you naturally have self-calibrating equipment that is more a derivative of how other people treat you than it is what it is that you see in the mirror. Do blind people have to deal with this? Of course. In other words, so blind people absolutely have awareness of their own attractiveness as a result of how other people treat them. So if you are a very beautiful, handsome person that's blind, you know it. Wow. You are well aware of that, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I, that's actually, that is a fantastic PhD dissertation process. Uh, project for for somebody uh aj that you just ran across literally self-image self-confidence and feedback you know calibration processes in blind that would be very illuminating even though we already know quite a bit but i'm sure that's beautiful territory for the exploration of how these things work I used to volunteer at the Braille Institute when I lived in LA teaching cooking. And I noticed that like the people that were blind from birth, they were, they, they seemed to suffer less than the people that lost their sight uh, as a result of like diabetes or an accident later, that it was much harder for them than the people that were always blind. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway. All right, AJ. All right. Thanks, Dr. Lyle. So great to see you. Happy Thanksgiving since I won't see you till next month. Good. Eat healthy. Keep looking good, AJ. All right. Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow. My guest, Ainsley Bigby, I met at Rancho La Puerta. She's going to teach you how to pack a carry-on bag and pack for the whole week. It's fantastic, her presentation. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, folks.